Welcome back, everybody, as we continue our studies in 1 Corinthians. This week, we find ourselves in chapter 13, which by far is the most well-known chapter in this letter of Paul's and maybe the best-known chapter in the New Testament scriptures. It's often referred to as the love chapter. And we hear it uh, read at weddings and uh, we hear it quoted many times. But I hope that as we look into it this, uh, in this session, that we'll look at it a little more deeply and see some things maybe we missed before. So without uh, further ado, let's just get into 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Uh, the two words in red are the Greek word and the Hebrew word for love. On the left is the word agape or agape, which is the word used in this chapter. And the word on the right is ahava, which is the Hebrew word for love. Now, in the first verse, Paul talks about if I talk, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. Well, Greek is an example of the tongues of men. In Jewish thought, there are 70 languages because when uh, the ark rested on Mount Ararat, the Genesis describes the generations, the descendants of Noah, and it lists 70 different nations. And, um, and this occurred, of course, at the Tower of Babel. Up to that time, everyone spoke one language. And then at that point, it was broken into 70 languages. But Hebrew, in Jewish thought, is always thought of as the language of transcendence. So we could call it the tongue of angels. It is believed to be the language that God spoke when he created the earth. And there certainly are some very supernatural and extraterrestrial features of this amazing heavenly language, Hebrew. Now, we talk about the word tongues in our translations in the New Testament, but that is just the word for languages. Uh, in Hebrew, the word for tongue is lashon, and it's uh, just a word that also means language. And in Greek, it's glossa, where we get the word glossary, but it means also a language. So a tongue is a language. But what I want to do is look at this uh, amazing word, ahava, and analyze it a little bit. And I think you'll be amazed at some of the features in this word. There it is again, a little bit larger. And as you know, in Hebrew, each letter has a numeric value. Uh, they did not have numerals in ancient Israel. They used letters of the Hebrew alphabet to represent numerals. And so the first letter of Ahava is Aleph, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which has a numerical value of one. The next letter is He, which equals five. It's the fifth letter. The next letter is Beit, which is the second letter of the alphabet, <clears throat> has a numerical value of two. And then there's another He, which equals five. And if we add these up, they total 13. The numerical value of the word for love is the number 13. And it's kind of coincidental, I think, that the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians is the love chapter. And if you look, you'll also notice that the chapter has exactly 13 verses, 13 sentences. And uh, maybe this is a coincidence, but then again, maybe God had something to do with it. Now, the first occurrence of the word ahava in the scriptures is in Genesis 22.2. This is where God commands Abraham in verse 2. He tells him, take your son, your only begotten son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. So the first occurrence of this word is in the description of a father's love for his only begotten son. We need to keep that in mind as we think of the word love, the love of a father for his only begotten son. And what's interesting, if we take the first letter, Aleph, and the third letter, Beit, they spell the word Av, which means father. Because the kind of love described by Ahava is a father's love. In fact, whenever you say the word Avi, which means my father, it has a numerical value of 13 once again. Now, when people love one another, 
They're united. In Colossians 3.14, Paul writes, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So when we love each other, we become one. We become echad, which means one. If you are familiar with the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is echad, is one. This is the word. And if we look at this word, we see it has the first letter of the alphabet, which is one. The second letter is uh, the eighth letter, chet, which equals eight. And the last letter is dalet, which equals four. And if you add those together, again, you come up with the number 13, because love, which equals 13, makes people one, which equals 13, echad. But if we look at God's own name, yud Hey vav Hey, you'll notice that it's similar to the word for love. At the top, we have aleph Hey bet Hey. And the first and third letters spell the word Av, Father. But God's proper name, the Tetragrammaton, the word that is unpronounceable, the word that is not to be pronounced, it's a very holy name, yad Heh vav Heh is God's personal name. And this is the name that is used in Genesis many times, but was expounded upon and revealed to Moses in a deeper way there in Exodus, I believe it's chapter 6. Now, if we look at this name, it's made of the letter Yud, which equals 10, then He, which equals 5, Vav, which equals 6, and then another He, which equals 5. If we add those together, they equal 26, which equals 2 times 13. Now, this can't be coincidence. Why is God's name double love? Why is it two times the word for Ahava, the word for love. Well, when Yeshua was asked, what is the greatest commandment, what did he do? He gave two commandments. He says, the greatest commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, and your resources. So, the first commandment is love for God. And what does love equal? The number 13. But Yeshua went on to give a second commandment. He says, and the second is like unto it, and that is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So it's love for people. That would be another 13. When we love God with all of our heart, soul, and strength, and when we love our neighbor as ourself, what happens is God shows up. We are picturing who God is. It's interesting also that when you look at God's name, the first letter and the third letter, the Yad and the Vav, these are masculine letters. If you study Hebrew, uh, you'll know that every noun is either masculine or feminine. There's no neuter. Everything's masculine or feminine. But Yad and Vav tend to be masculine letters that indicate masculine words. But He, which is the second and the fourth letter, these are feminine letters. And when you look at God's name, yad he vav you see masculine, feminine, masculine, feminine. You see a blend of the masculine and the feminine. Now, of course, God is always referred to in the masculine, but femininity itself, the creation of Eve, the creation of woman, is something that emanated from God. It was something that was in his mind and in his soul that he wanted to bring into the world and have man and woman come together to form ichad, to become one. We're going to come, in fact, I'm going to jump down to this for just a moment. Uh, Here I have two lists of Hebrew names. And in the right-hand list, we have Abraham or Avraham. And below that, we have Yitzchak or Isaac. And then Isaac's son, Yaakov, or Jacob. So we have the grandfather, the father, and then the grandson here. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. If you count the letters of their names, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 6, 7, 8, I'm sorry, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, we see we have 13 letters. Now on the left-hand column, we have 
the wives, the matriarchs. Abraham's wife was Sarah, and there are three letters in her name. Isaac's wife was Rivka or Rebekah. There are four letters in her name. Jacob, if you know the story, he fell in love with Rachel, Rachel, but when he woke up uh, on the, uh, the morning after his wedding, he was married to Leah, her sister. And there are three letters in her name. If you add up the letters, you'll find that once again, the letters and the names of the matriarchs total to 13 letters. It's another picture that when man and woman, husband and wife, are united together, God's name is formed. There are other ways in Hebrew we could show this, but for the sake of time, we uh, can't quite get into it in this teaching. Let's go back up for a second. Another example of 13 that uh, indicates love, especially God's love, is in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, which is right from last week's Torah portion. Moses is on the mountain with God after the, the terrible sin of the golden calf, and, and they're having a conversation, and Moses says, I want to see your glory. Show me your chavod. Show me your glory. And God tells Moses, I will make all my goodness, all my tov pass before you. And so God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock, covers him with his hand, and then the presence and glory of God passes by. And once God's passed by, his hand is taken away. And then God proclaims what have come to be known as his 13 attributes of mercy. But notice again how many attributes there are. 13. We'll circle back to this a little bit later on and look at what these are. But there aren't 12, there aren't 14, it's 13, because 13 is the number of Ahava, love. And remember that second commandment that Yeshua gave? The second commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, the Ahavta l'Reacha Kamoka. There it is in Hebrew. But count the letters, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. Once again, we have 13 letters. See, no man could write this book. Uh, the Torah and every jot and every tittle of it were placed by hand by God exactly as he wanted. And we see these themes running through this amazing book that is written in the language of the angels, the, the language of transcendence. So, with that little bit of background, let's get right in to chapter 13. This, this chapter is sometimes thought to be a hymn, whether it was a hymn that Paul himself wrote, which I believe he did. It, it appears to be a hymn that might have been sung, and it has three main sections. The first three verses uh, form a section which I call the worthless life. The second section, verses 4 through 7, uh, form its own section, which I call love in action. And then the final section, verses 8 to 13, uh, praise the greatness of love. It's endurance. It's the eternal nature. So let's just jump into the chapter. What I'm going to do uh, is read through it and make some brief comments as we go. And then we're going to come back and look at some details. So the first section, what I call the worthless life. If I speak in the languages of men and of angels, but have not love, agape, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, all secrets, and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. That word resentful is uh, unique. It's not one word in Greek. It's three. In Greek, it's logizatai to kakov. 
Legizitai Tokakov, and Legizitai is an accounting term. If you're keeping up a, a ledger of, of accounts, Legizitai is what you're doing. And so Legizitai Tokakov means to make an account of an evil deed. And you know what? We have to fight that temptation to keep this running account, this ledger in our minds. Every time an individual says something wicked or hurtful to us or demonstrates a bad attitude to us, we want to put it in that ledger. And then on the other side of the ledger, we have accounts payable. That person owes me for what they said. They owe me for what they did. And we have this account of debts we feel we are owed by that person who has hurt us. This is a wicked thing to do. Love does not do this. And if we have this running account in our minds and in our hearts, it's called unforgiveness. And God says such a wicked thing itself <clears throat> excuse me, is unforgivable. So if you find yourself distant from God, and if you find wicked spiritual forces beginning to afflict your mind, your sleep, your attitudes, if you sense God's blessing being removed, you're working harder and, and the blessings are decreasing, there's probably some unforgiveness in your heart. Because the Master said, I believe it's in Matthew, that if we are unforgiving, we invite the tormentors into our life. And so many times I find people who are tormented, there's unforgiveness there. And we simply have to clear that out. We need to take our account book, our ledger of wrongs people have done us, and throw it in the fire. But verse 6 continues, Love, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love loves the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. Now, when it says believes all things, it doesn't believe stupidity. It doesn't believe lies. What it means is it believes in people. Um, There's a saying in Judaism that we should judge every man favorably. In other words, if we see someone doing something, and we don't care for what they're doing, don't just assume they're a wicked person. You may be misinterpreting what you see. You may be misinterpreting what you hear. Judging favorably until you have reason to, to know and prove that what he did was indeed wrong. And if it was wrong, the scriptures give us clear steps as how to go about restoring that person and bringing correction to that person. But it believes all things. It hopes all things. It's optimistic. Love is always optimistic. Love knows that God is love, that God runs the world, and this story of mankind does have a happy ending. So why in the world would we ever be pessimistic? And it also endures all things. The verse starts with it bears all things, it ends with endures all things. And these two Greek words are different, but they're, they're very similar in their meaning and how they are translated. So you can do a study on that on your own if you wish but I'm not going to take time this morning to to get into that. And then we come to the third section, which begins in verse 8. Oh, by the way, going back to verses 4 through 7, remember um, a session or two ago, I talked about how the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of affection is hate. Affection and hate are emotions. Love, agape, is not an emotion. It is an action. It is a verb. And all of these, all of these words, these descriptors in verses 4 to through 7 are active verbs. When we translate into English, they come out as adjectives. Love is patient. That's an adjective. Love is kind. That's an adjective. But in the Greek, it reads more like love is actively patient. It's being patient. It is being kind. It is not envying. It is not boasting. Everything here is very much an active verb. It's doing something. So the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is selfishness. Because love is always giving. It's always doing for the sake of God and others. Whereas selfishness is always doing for the sake of me. Always taking. So, 
With that in mind, let's move on to verse 8. The third section, the greatness of love. Love never ends, or love never fails, or maybe better, love never falls. The word there is pipto, which I like, pipto. And uh, it is translated fall back in chapter 10, verse 12, where Paul says, if you think you stand, take heed lest you pipto, lest you fall. Love does not fall, does not collapse under the burden it carries. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for languages, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when teleos, that's the Greek word teleos, when the perfect, the complete comes, that which is in part, the partial, will pass away. Very interesting word, teleos. It's the equivalent of the Hebrew word shalem, from which we get the word shalom, peace. Shalem means to be complete or to be mature, to have reached its ultimate goal. And... Uh, this is a reference that Paul is using to apply to the world to come. When the world to come arrives, the story of mankind will have reached its ultimate goal. And when it does, we don't need prophecies anymore because there's nothing left that needs to happen. We don't need languages anymore, which came about at the Tower of Babel because of the wickedness of man. Because man will become ichad, will become one, and languages will no longer separate us. And we'll go back to the, the, the language, the tongue of God. And knowledge, knowing facts, um, that becomes less important because we will know the truth. And knowing truth is what really matters. Now, I probably shouldn't even get into this, but... In certain evangelical circles, they translate verse 10 as referring to the completion of the New Testament canon of Scripture. So that when the Scriptures were complete, when the last period was added to the last sentence of the New Testament, all the signs and all the gifts of the Spirit came to a, a screeching halt. This simply is not true. This is simply trying to support a theology that does not believe that the gifts of the Spirit still occur today. The gifts of the Spirit do still occur today, period. It's just the way it is. Because the world to come is still the world to come, not the world that has come. And until the world to come arrives, the gifts of the Spirit will continue. Um, now, we'll talk about this more next week because, uh, just a heads up, spoiler alert, much of what we see passing for gifts of the Spirit aren't gifts of the Spirit. Uh, many of the things we see are actually fraudulent, they're counterfeit, and we need great discernment to understand what is from God, what is truly a gift coming from His Spirit, and what is something that's just coming out of the fertile imaginations of some overzealous believer. So we'll talk about that more next week. Verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. You know, the sad thing is I know so many believers, and you do too, who have never matured, and they still speak like children, they think like children, and they reason, they respond to situations like children. We need to grow up, especially in these last days. We need to be mature. We must become disciples of Yeshua. We need to be strong, strong men, strong women who follow God with all of our hearts. And um, we need to put away the childish things in our lives. He says, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly. Uh, the King James says, we see in a glass darkly. And... Um, but then face to face. Now this phrase, a dim mirror or a dark glass, is not something that Paul coined. It's actually uh, found in several of the ancient writings of Israel. Uh, to be specific, it's found in the mystical writings of Israel, in the Zohar, to be precise. Let me give you one example. Um, <clears throat> in the Zohar, and I am not saying the Zohar is inspired scripture. It's just a collection of... Uh, insights into the Torah and uh, 
explanations and thoughts about how the world works, how the spiritual realm works. There's nothing occult in it. There are no spells. There's no foolishness in it. It's, uh, it's just the thinkings of some rabbis from thousands of years ago. But here's just one quote. It cites Joshua 3.11, which says, <clears throat> excuse me, Behold the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth. Joshua 3.11, Behold the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord of all the earth, unquote. And then it comments on that phrase. It says the Ark here is the unclear mirror the glass darkly or the, dark, the dim mirror. The Ark of the Covenant is the dim mirror. The Ark is the receptacle for the written Torah. Whereas the covenant, the covenant inside the Torah is the sun that illuminates it. What it is saying here is that you could not look into the Ark to see what was inside. There was something between you and the contents of the Ark and that thing that was in between you and the contents. The ark itself is like a dim mirror. It spoke of what was inside, but it did not completely reveal it. The Zohar gives another example. It says that just as our souls are clothed in these human bodies so we can live in this world, there is also a supernal body, a spiritual body. And Paul talks about this spiritual body in two more chapters, in chapter 15. And it says that this physical body is like a dim mirror. It doesn't really reveal the treasure we have in these jars of clay. But someday we will have a new body which will perfectly reflect and perfectly express the glory of God that lives within us by his spirit. And so what it really means is this. In this world, things are obscure. And that word for dim, for dim mirror, is the word enigma in Greek. Enigma, that's where we get our English word. It's something that is obscure. It's an enigma. It's something that's difficult to understand. So, someday we will see as we are seen. We'll understand as we are understood. But until then, we are looking at a rough sketch of truth, of reality. And we have to do the best we can and depend upon God's spirit and the presence of his word within us to help us make sense of the imagery of this world. And, uh, but the day is coming when the perfect will arrive and we'll see things perfectly and clearly. 1 John 3, 2, one of my favorite verses speaks of this. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And um, that word teleos again, uh, I have to share this. Teleos, which means the complete, the mature. It's used also in James 1.25, where James writes, But the one who looks into the teleos Torah, the perfect Torah. The Torah is complete and perfect. So the one who looks into the perfect Torah, the liberating Torah, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You know, one of the things that is actually dangerous about this chapter is that we can study it and think we understand what love is. And then because we understand love and we have knowledge of what love is, we can think we're actually being loving when we're not. We human beings have this weird and broken thing in us that thinks if I just know something, if I just understand something, that's the same as doing something, and it isn't. Unfortunately, I have found in my own experience that some of the most unloving people and hurtful people I have ever met are those who claim to be disciples of Yeshua. They claim to be Christians. They claim to be followers of God, the God who is love. 
And they have more information about what love is than anybody out in the world does. And yet in many ways, they don't express it very well. They don't practice it very well. So I'm just imploring you to do what I have to do too, and I'm not very good at this. But so many times I think because I know about love, because I've studied this chapter, that therefore I'm a loving person. That one doesn't necessarily follow the other. So I just challenge you to truly love your neighbors yourself, to truly love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Don't just talk about it. Do it. Love is an action. So we'll finish the chapter. Verse 12, For now we see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith or faithfulness, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love. So let's look, let's dig down a little more deeply in a few of these things. You know, when you look at those first three verses of our chapter, what you see really in the background is a picture of Yeshua, our rabbi. I wrote this about Yeshua. He was the perfect teacher and communicated God's word with power. Wouldn't you love to be able to do that? He was the perfect prophet who understood the secret things of God, had supernatural knowledge and unfailing faith. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have that? He gave everything in his service to God and to mankind and courageously died a martyr's death. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have that level of service to God? But what does Paul say? If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, you know, as a martyr, but have not love, I gain nothing. In other words, you can have these qualities of Yeshua, our Messiah, but without love, you say nothing, you are nothing, and you gain nothing. How many times have we tried to imitate Yeshua in all his actions and in his qualities the best we can, except with that one all-important aspect of love, always doing, always giving, never looking to get, never looking to receive and take, not keeping account of wrongs. When people slander you just to remain quiet, to not defend yourself when people think evil of you, just to love them back. When people cut you? Do you bleed out hatred and resentment, unforgiveness and bitterness? Or do you bleed out love? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Which one comes out? You know, we're pretty close to being nothing already. (laughs) And this is shown again in Hebrew. This Hebrew word here is ani. That's the word that means I, me, ani. But if we switch the last two letters, it means nothing. Now, this letter and this letter are the same letter. Uh, It's letter nun is just one of those letters that when it comes at the end of a word, it changes shape. But it is the same letter. So ani and ayin, nothing, are spelled with the same three letters. We are each very close to being a nothing. I want you to think about this for a second. When God created Adam, he formed his body out of the dust. And these bodies we have, when our souls uh, leave the building, these bodies turn back to dust. It was not the dust that made Adam alive. It was not the dust that made Adam, Adam. It was not the dust that made Adam a nefeshkaiah, a living soul. It was God breathing into his nostrils the breath of life that made Adam, Adam, a living soul, a human being, a man in God's image. 
everything that matters in you and in me comes from God. And even as we put food into these bodies, keep them alive, man doesn't live by food alone, but by everything proceeds from God's mouth. We must continue to breathe his breath by breathing in the scriptures. We must continue to be animated by what he gives. Everything about life, everything about being human comes from him. We don't profit from the dust. We profit from him. And God is love. That is why he made Adam in the first place. That is, that's his heartbeat. He wanted companionship. This may sound really strange, but it's something I've often thought about. I think you, you know it's true in your own heart as well. And I've heard rabbis talk about this. So I'm just going to say it. Though God is God, there's something he needs something he desperately wants, something he can't really give himself. And that's love from an independent creature. I mean, as Rabbi Manus Friedman says, what do you give the guy who has everything? What can we give God? What can we give God that he needs? One thing, give him love out of an open heart and of a free will simply because we love him. Asking nothing in return, just to love him. The whole purpose for the creation and the creation of man, the whole purpose of this human story that we're in is so that God can make a bride. He wants a bride. Someone who will choose to love him. Choose to love him. Not have to love him, but choose to. To find him lovable. And then, without proof, without sight, to commit to him, even when it can be painful and challenging, and choose, God, I'm going to love for you, Love you, I'm going to live for you, I'm going to serve you, I'm going to stand for you. When I'm tested, my love is tested, I'm going to continue to love you. When the whole world cries out to me, you're a fool for doing that, I will still love you. That's what God's looking for. That's what he wants so desperately. That's what he needs. And only you and I can really Give him that, or not. It's up to us. It won't make anybody love him. We know that the day comes when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord of the glory of God. But that's not necessarily love. That's simply acknowledging that he is God, that he is king. You can serve your king and bow to him and obey him without loving him. But God wants more. He wants us to love him. Now this brings us to something that um, is, it can easily be missed as we read the Torah. When God gave the Torah at Sinai, he wasn't giving us just a set of rules. And so many Messianic believers think the Torah is just a set of rules. It is not just a set of rules. It's something much more. He wasn't giving us a set of rules. He was telling us who he is. God gives us the Torah, with, which includes the rules. But he's given it to us to say, this is how I think. This is what I love. This is what I hate. This is who I am. He loves us and desperately wants us to love him. Therefore, if we love him, we will keep his commandments. Now, this is an interesting thing. We quoted a a few weeks ago how Yeshua said, You are my friends if you do whatsoever I tell you. Now, only someone who's absolutely perfect and holy and loving and good, like Yeshua, can get away with saying something like that. I can't get away with that. You can't either. You're my friend if you do what I tell you to do. Mm -mm. Because you see, anybody who would say that 
is using you and trying to get you to please them, to uh, serve them, to um, kowtow to them and meet their needs. That's not what God is saying. That's not what Yeshua is saying. He has no needs other than need for us to love him. What he wants is somebody like him. He wants us to be like him. And so he gives us his commandments so that we can conform our lives to be more like his. And if we love him, we'll keep his commandments. Every commandment he gives is an opportunity for us to love him and to do so by bringing our life into conformity with his. Do you see what I'm saying? And then we turn from being an ain, a nothing, to being an ani, to being a, an I, being a me, to being a human being in God's image. The purpose of his commandments is not just so he can control us, not at all. The purpose of his commandments is so we can maintain a covenant relationship of love with him. We can become more like him. We can know him more as he is. And we can become a more fit companion for him and receive his love more fully and completely. This is the theme of the commandments. This is the theme of love. I mean, how many times did Yeshua talk and, and John, over in 1 John, talk about keeping God's commandments? Here's just one. John 15, verses 9 through 11. Yeshua says, As the Father has loved me. Now, how much is that? How much does God love his only begotten son? How can can you even measure that? But listen to what Yeshua says. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. In other words, Yeshua says, I love you as much as the Father loves me. See, love just doesn't have limits. So Yeshua says, abide in my love. Now, how do you do that? If, you, if he loves us, well, he loves us. What's, what's this mean, abide? What is there for me to do? If he loves me, uh, there's nothing left for me to do, right? Yes, there is. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Yeshua kept the Father's commandments, and by doing so, he abided in God's love, and he was filled with joy. Yeshua says, I love you just that much as well. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love because you'll be aligning your life with mine. And the joy I have, you'll have. His commandments are not to keep us down like slaves. His commandments are to raise us up, to become an ani, to become an I, to become a, a human being who can stand and someday look God face to face, eye to eye, and say, I love you. That's what God wants. Our mistake is this. We all want to be like God. We are made in his image. There's an innate desire to be like him. But our problem is like Adam and Eve's. We think there are shortcuts to becoming like God. And the first temptation there in the garden was when the serpent tempted Adam and Eve and said that uh, if you eat of that of that tree, you'll know good and evil. You'll be like God. And so they thought the way to becoming like God was by obtaining power, obtaining some ability that they did not have. This knowledge of good and evil would be this thing they could get. And if they had this thing, they'd be more like God. And unfortunately, so many believers look at the spiritual gifts gifts of prophecy, 
of healing, of tongues, of words of knowledge, of miracles. They think, I want those things. But they're wanting those things because of power, not because of love. Let's make sure we understand something. One of the questions, discussion questions I ask is why, why did God inspire Paul to drop this chapter about love right in the middle of his discussion about spiritual gifts? Chapter 12 and chapter 14 are about the spiritual gifts. And right in smack in the middle, he drops this, this love bomb about what love is. Why does he do that? Because what we can tend to do is think that spiritual gifts are a substitute for love. Spiritual gifts do not equal love. Here's what spiritual gifts are. Spiritual gifts are supposed to be channels through which love can flow. And God will give gifts of prophecy so that our love for God and love for man has a channel through which to flow, to speak to people, to bring God's message to people. If God gives a gift of miracles, I've never met someone with this gift, but it's listed. That gift is given so that it gets a channel for God's love. Every miracle we see Yeshua performing was done out of love. If it's a word of knowledge or tongues or healing, these gifts are not ends in themselves. They're to be channels for God's love to flow. But we want the gifts, and we look at love, well, that's that that other thing. It's just some kind of attitude I need to have to make it look nice. And no, love is not cosmetics. Love is the power. Love is the essence of who God is. The spiritual gifts are simply a a pipe through which this love can flow. But here's the danger. If we seek spiritual gifts apart from love, if we seek that, that's just seeking power. And seeking spiritual power is the heart and soul of the occult. Every branch of the occult, of witchcraft, of Satanism, is always the attempt to achieve spiritual power. And this just isn't my observation. This is what I have heard people who have come out of the cult say. It's always a search for spiritual power. And so much that passes for the charismatic movement today, not all of it, but so much of it is simply occultism dressed up in a New Testament talk. Or as our friend Adam Haynes says, it's just got Jesus sauce poured on it. We need to be careful what the essence is. If you're seeking spiritual gifts for the sake of power, that is occultism. I don't care what names you put on it. I don't care if you quote Bible verses and you use Jesus' name and you pray to God. It's occultism. You're seeking power. It's the same temptation that Satan put before Adam and Eve in the garden. We are to seek spiritual gifts, but not for our own power. We're to seek them only in the service of the king and for the service to our our brothers and sisters. No other reason than that. Earlier we mentioned mentioned the um, 13 attributes of mercy. When um, Moses went up on Mount Sinai. And this is after he had already spent 40 days up there and 40 nights. And he came down with the the tablets with the the Ten Commandments on them. And he came down and and he saw the the people committing idolatry with the golden calf. He was so angry, so disappointed, he threw the tablets down and broke them. And you know the, the terrible episode. Well, God is ready just to wipe out the Israelites and say, let me just start a new group out of you, Moses. But Moses intervened and he interceded and prayed for his people. And, and, uh, and so God relented. And in their conversation, Moses says, show me your kavod, show me your glory. And God says, no, but I'll, pass. I'll make all my goodness pass before you. Now, here's the interesting thing. Moses 
when he asked to see God's glory, what was he really asking for? Was he asking to see God's power? Was he asking to see God's wow factor? Well, a little over 40 days earlier, all the Israelites had seen that. They had seen the mountain shaking. They had seen it covered with a thick cloud and darkness with fire in the midst. They had heard the shofar blast. It continued to get louder and louder and louder. They had heard God's voice speak from Mount Sinai. They had had a big dose of God's greatness and power and glory. And they were so frightened. They were so terrified that they cried out to Moses. Moses, you go talk to him. Make this stop. They had seen God's glory and power in in an incredible way. And 40 days later, they're worshiping a golden calf. So what does God show Moses? It's almost like he says, Moses, it's not my glory that you need to see. I want you to see my heart. Because if we're real honest with each other, with ourselves, we realize that God being omniscient, knowing all things, omnipotent, having all power, being omnipresent, being everywhere at one time, having these great powers doesn't make us love him. It might make us afraid of him, and fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. But it doesn't necessarily make us love him. And again, the Israelites saw his glory and power, and they still resorted to idolatry the first chance they had. God wants to show us his heart. And so, he calls Moses, and uh, he calls out to him, and this is what he says, Adonai passed before and proclaimed, and here are the 13 attributes of mercy. We could call them, I think, attributes of ahava, of love. Here they are. First, he says, Yadhevafe, Adonai, God's unpronounceable name. And then he says it a second time. And then he says, El, which is the common Hebrew word for God. So it's Adonai, Adonai, El. Now let me pause there for a second. This is odd. Why does he say his name twice and then what he is once? According to Jewish theology and, and, and tradition, when we see God's name, yad heh vav where we say Adonai or Hashem, the name, in your English translations, that might be the word Lord in all capital letters. They say that this indicates God's attribute of mercy. And here we see it a second time. But when God uses his, the word El or Elohim, that is his, as displaying his characteristic of strict justice. Strict justice. Now, if this is indeed the case, and it seems to prove out as I read the scriptures, we see his name of mercy two times and his name of strict justice once. So which one is outweighing the other? But then he goes on. He's merciful. He's gracious. Who says there's no grace in the Old Testament, in the Torah? He's gracious. Slow to anger. Abounding in chesed. Now, whatever word you have there in your translation, it's not as good a word as chesed. We just don't have an English word that measures up to this magnificent Hebrew word chesed. And I think I mentioned a few weeks ago um, the book on Hesed by um, the, the Christian musician, uh, which is, I'm going to forget, Michael Card. There it is, Michael Card. It's, uh, I think it's called Irresistible. I hope I have that right. But it should be on the reading list on our website. And he writes the entire book about Hesed, and he defines it as one who has everything gives it to one who deserves nothing. And God gives everything to those who deserve nothing. That's chesed. So he's abounding in chesed. 
en emet, truth. Yours may say faith, but the word there is emet, truth. Preserving chesed, there it is again, for thousands. And this means thousands of people. It's always been understood to mean for thousands of generations. And forgiving iniquity, that is the word avon, which is guilt. And transgression, this is the word pesha, which means willful sins. You sin on purpose knowing you're sinning, and God still forgives it. And sin, or better translation is error. The word there is chatat, which means error. And who cleanses. That's love. This is what God revealed to Moses. This is what God wants us to see. Because it's not his omniscience he put on display, his omnipotence, his omnipresence. It was these qualities. You know, when Yeshua came to earth, he did not come omnipresent. He was only in one place at a time. He did not come omniscient, knowing all things, because there are some things he didn't know. Some, one of the disciples asked, when are you going to return? He says, I don't know. Only the Father knows. And he says, I only speak the things that I hear the Father say. I only do the things I see him do. And he was not omnipotent. He only did the things that God gave him to do. It's pretty well agreed that the miracles Yeshua did were miracles that a truly righteous man would perform if he was truly as righteous as Yeshua was. It wasn't because Yeshua was God. It was simply because Yeshua was righteous, completely yielded to God, and therefore he worked these miracles. Yeshua didn't come as this powerful being, but he did come demonstrating all of these. He demonstrated all of these. So when you ask the question, what makes God, God? Yeah, it's his power and his glory and all of that. But at the heart of it, this is what makes God, God. These are what make Yeshua the Son of God. And these are things that God wants us to display as well. I can't know everything. I can't be everywhere. I don't have all power. But I can practice these to the best of my ability, to the best of my limited abilities. I can practice these qualities of God. Because these are the things that make me love him. And these are the things people will find loving in you. As, uh, as I, I go through the year, I, I know I'm always studying for these teachings and I study for other things I have to do. But when I have a spare hour here or there, I just take the next chapter of the Bible, wherever I'm at. I just slowly make my way through the Bible, the snail's pace. And this week, I happen to be in Second Chronicles chapter 6. And I'm so glad the timing worked out this way, because I made an amazing discovery. I'm sure other people discovered this, but it was a new one for me. In Second Chronicles 6, we see Solomon dedicating his new temple. In 4 and 5, chapters 4 and 5, we see the temple being built. We see the furnishings for the temple being made. And we see the dimensions and the materials and everything. And it's just a magnificent structure. And then the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant is placed in the Holy of Holies. And then the day comes when Solomon gathers the leaders of Israel. They're all there. And thousands of people. And he prays a prayer of dedication to dedicate this house, the house that his father David wanted to build, but that Solomon was privileged to build. And it says in verse 12, Then Solomon stood before the altar of Adonai. Now let's make sure we understand something. This altar is described back in chapter 4, verse 1. This thing was big. It tells us there it was 20 cubits long. That's 30 feet long long. That's 30 yards long. And it was 20 cubits wide, so it was square. And it was 10 cubits tall. That's about 15 feet. This is a massive altar. Then Solomon stood before the altar. He goes around in front of the altar 
of Adonai in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Now get this. Solomon had made a bronze platform, a bronze platform, platform made out of bronze. Okay, get the picture. It's five cubits long, five cubits wide, three cubits tall, much smaller, and had set it in the court, and he stood on it. Then he knelt on his knees, on this platform, this bronze platform, he knelt on it in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. And then he prays this beautiful, beautiful prayer that fills the rest of chapter 6. Now this is what jumped out at me because just this past week, we read a description of the tabernacle. And when you read the description of the altar in the tabernacle, this is what it says. You shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long, five cubits wide. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. You get the connection? And this altar of acacia wood was covered with bronze, as you read later. Here's the picture. Solomon is dedicating this new house to the Lord. But he has a platform built out of bronze. It has exactly the same dimensions as the bronze altar back in the tabernacle. This is not a coincidence. There's the huge altar he built for the sacrifices, but the picture here is Solomon built a small altar, the same dimensions and it's of bronze, like the bronze altar of the tabernacle. And he gets up on it, and then he kneels down. He lifts his hands to heaven and dedicates this house to God. Keep that picture in mind whenever you read about being a living sacrifice, because Solomon was enacting that deed, that concept. All of us are in the process of building a house for God, of making a home for God in our lives. But we can only do it with love. And love requires that we be a living sacrifice because that's what love does. It gives. It gives to the last breath, to the last ounce of strength, to the last penny. It does not fail. It does not fall. It bears up, it endures, and if it doesn't, then it wasn't love. You cannot love the way God wants us to love without giving your life completely and totally to him, without investing it completely in his kingdom. I'm going to close with this. A few weeks ago, we talked about death and dying, how if you want to live a free life, you must realize you're a dead man. You've been crucified with the Messiah. And your life is no longer your own. It's been given to him. That is the ultimate act of love, to give your life away completely and allow it to be given away to him fully and forever. Romans 6, verses 3 to 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been immersed into Messiah, all of us have been immersed into Messiah, Yeshua, were immersed into his death. We were buried, therefore, with them by immersion into death, in order that, just as Messiah was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. If you want the newness of life, you must reckon yourselves to be dead with Messiah, to be buried with him, to be done with doing things your own way. Then, and only then, can you experience the freedom and the joy and the fullness and the abundance of the newness of life? Because you've unburdened yourself of self. For if we have been united, if we're ichad with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So, Discussing, discussion questions there in your small groups. 
Why do you think Paul interrupted his discussion about spiritual gifts with this chapter on love? We talked about that a bit. Now, here's one for you to puzzle through. How many tribes of Israel were there? How many tribes of Israel were there? And a little hint, how many apostles were there in addition to the rabbi? What's the total number of men who traveled around with the apostles plus Yeshua? Take the list of the traits of love in verses 4 through 7, those action, action verbs, and make a list of their opposites. Now, this can be kind of fun. So you write out this list. There's about uh, 9 or, I forget, 9 or 10, 13, 14, I forget. But uh, make a list of them, then find their opposites. Make a list of all their opposite qualities. Which list feels more familiar in your own life? This might hurt a little bit, but it'll be very beneficial if you do it. How do we abide in Messiah's love? And why is love superior to faithfulness and hope? That's a very important question. So take some time to think about these things and discuss them. And, um, and then email me this week if you get some really great insights from this. So with that, we'll close in prayer. Our Father, our King, we thank you for loving us as you have. A, a, a sacrificial love, uh, a love that loves to the very end. And Lord, when we picture Yeshua kneeling down and washing his disciples' feet, we see love. And when we see Yeshua executed on that cross in agony and in shame, and he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And Father, we see love, love for the whole world. So Lord, help us to aspire to be love. For, first, for John tells us in 1 John that God is Ahava, he is love. Help us to be love. Help us to be giving and not taking. To be people more like your son, our Savior, Messiah, Yeshua, in whose name we pray. Amen.